Thank you, Drew. Y'all open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we've been in Matthew chapter 21 for a few weeks now. And this chapter that we're looking at, that we're studying, and the think of the life of Christ now, his earthly life, what week of his life are we looking at? Yeah, the, the, what people often will call the Passion Week. This is the week. Now, I don't know if I would say it's his last one because he resurrected. I know you know that. But, like in, but b- this is the week leading up to the crucifixion. And it's the week that we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 21. And what you mainly see is this really interesting interaction between Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And you've got people who... Some people are genuinely believing in him and praising him. Some people are kind of getting just an idea for who he is and and calling out to him, but it doesn't seem like they really get it. But then you've got this really strong conflict with another group, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. When you think about the religious leaders of Jerusalem during this time and the system of Judaism that they have, what how would you really describe it? You would describe it as a legalistic system, right? A system that says, hey, if you do the right things, if you follow these rules, if you're good enough, then you can reconcile yourself to God. It's really what we see with most, in fact, all other world religions. Is that not correct? I mean, isn't that like the basis of every single religion outside of faith in Christ, that you follow these rules, you, f- you earn your way to heaven, you work your way back into a right relationship with God. It was the same idea with the Judaizers. It was the same idea with the religious leaders of the time that Jesus was walking on this earth. And Jesus was a challenge to that. But not only was it just this religious system, it was like this power structure and this authority that they had over the people through this system of religion. And again, Jesus is a challenge to that power structure. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus, if you've been with us throughout Matthew, you've seen how there's regular conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. There's been that regular conflict, but now as we enter into Jerusalem, there you really get focused in on that pressure and that conflict, which ultimately, just like Josh mentioned, culminates in the crucifixion on Friday of the Passion Week that we're looking at. But this pressure is building throughout, right? We So the beginning of chapter 21, the triumphal entry, when Jesus first approaches Jerusalem, he rides in like a king on the donkey and people are crying out to him, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, son of David. Remember, Hosanna means God save us. And son of David is a reference back to Daniel chapter seven and the messianic figure in Daniel chapter seven called the son of David. People would have recognized that title as a reference to Daniel seven, calling it out to Jesus. They're saying, save us God they're calling Jesus the Messiah and for the religious leaders again this makes them very very uncomfortable and that's Monday on Tuesday who remembers where Jesus went where did Jesus go on Tuesday of the week he was crucified 
It's uh, right after the triumphal entry. The temple. So not only is he in Jerusalem, like the city that's the center of their nation and religion, but now he's going to the temple. So like the very heart of the physical manifestation of their religion. Jesus goes right into their turf. And when he's in the temple, remember, he overthrows, or he, he runs out the merchants, he, he overturns the tables of the money changers, those individuals who were um, taking advantage of the poor who were there to worship, and they had turned um, these, these religious observances into a way for them to make money. Jesus heals people while he's in the temple, and again, the people call out, Hosanna, son of David. And this is gets the attention of the religious leaders. You see in verse 16 of Matthew 21, they come up to Jesus and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? They're saying to Jesus, hey, you shouldn't be letting people call you the Messiah. You shouldn't be letting people cry out to you, God, save us. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, actually, they are right. He says, they might be the humble, they might be the ones that you, as the religious leaders, look down at, but they are right. And that brings us to Wednesday. And if you're with us Sunday morning, and if you weren't, go listen to it, because I think Matt did a really good job. Matt got us going on Sunday morning, this extended dialogue conflict, conversation between Jesus and these religious leaders of Jerusalem. And a, pa- a point that Matt made a few times that I think is really excellent and important for us to hold on to, Jesus in these arguments, he wasn't trying to simply win an argument. Like, we've all been there, right? You know people who just want to argue just to win an argument. I was on the debate team in high school. We had no clue what we were talking about. But the objective was, at the end, for the judges to be like, yeah, your argument made more sense. You won. And every time I won, I was like, are you kidding? I have no idea what I've been talking about the past 45 minutes. But the whole point, it was just arguing for the sake of arguing. And we see that all around us. That's not what Jesus is doing when he is arguing with the religious leaders. This isn't a prideful thing on his part or him trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong. What Jesus is trying to do is teach the gospel, teach the truth, give us the truth about who God is, who Jesus is, and how we as people can be made right with God. And what's amazing when it comes to the Bible is this conversation between Jesus and the religious authorities. There would have been people around, and obviously people, Jesus wants the people around who are listening to these conversations to know the truth, but These things were recorded for the church throughout history and for us as well. Jesus wants us to see these arguments, these debates that he's having with the religious leaders. But the reason Jesus wants us to see them is so that we can know the truth. And while his argument in these passages and what we look at tonight is specifically with the first century religious leaders of Jerusalem who had this works-based system, are we not ourselves still surrounded 
with tons of workspace systems? Yes, we're surrounded with a lot of world religions and a lot of false religions that all, in essence, teach the exact same thing that the first century religious leaders of Jerusalem taught, that if you just try hard enough, you can be made right with God, that you are good enough to earn your way to heaven. You are good enough to be to, to make yourself right with God. And so when we read tonight this argument between Jesus and the religious leaders, what Jesus wants us to hear is his truth that, no, in and of ourselves, we are not good enough to earn our way back to God. That all of us, each and every one of us, are broken sinners, deeply sinful people, as bad as anybody else in the world, and in desperate need of the mercy that God offers us through Jesus Christ. The entryway into this, these conversations, so there's three parables or three lessons coming up that Jesus is going to give, but the entryway into these three, we're going to look at the first one only tonight, is what the entryway into this conversation was what Matt talked to us about on Sunday morning, where they approach Jesus and they question him about his authority. And Jesus, from this discussion on his authority, is going to launch into these three parables that expose their self-righteousness. It exposes their false religion, but the reason Jesus is exposing it is to teach all of us, the people around him in those days and all of us tonight, what the gospel is truly about. The lesson I would want you to take from our passage tonight is those who repent of their sinfulness will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who repent of their sinfulness will enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus teaches this through a parable of two sons. First, we're going to look at part one, a parable of two sons. And then part two, a shocking lesson. A shocking lesson. Because what's interesting here, Jesus is going to give this parable two sons. One son is obviously better than the other. One son is obviously worse. And Jesus is going to shock these religious leaders by saying, hey, you know who you considered the lowliest of society and the most sinful? They're actually the better. And you are actually the worst. So first, before we get into the shocking lesson, let's just look at the parable of the two sons. Verses 28 to 31. Jesus says to this group of religious leaders, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, Go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. So first, let's just focus on these two sons, since they're the ones that uh, Jesus uses 
to um, to to teach this lesson. And Jesus wants to get them thinking. So he starts verse 28. But what do you think? And for the lesson, he paints this picture where you've got this father in the first century. It's an agricultural society. Right. So like one of the reasons you like having kids is because there's a lot of work to do. It's not like like a lot of us these days, our idea of work, not like real people like Joel who go and do stuff, but like the rest of us. We sit there all day, right? We pound away at a keyboard, and I don't even know if what we're doing is real. It could all be fake. I have no idea. It's all digital. But whatever, like that wasn't the first century. Like the first century, you've got these farms. You've got these these animals to take care of, this agricultural agricultural stuff. You've got plants to take care of. So when you had kids, it was like, hey, these are workers. Like these are the people who are going to help me um, get out here, do the work we need to do to live. And so it would have been an illustration that these people would have been very easily able to relate to. And the father in this story gives his son their choice. And the first one is like, nah, no thank you. No thank you. But later, what do we see? He regrets it, and he goes out and does what his dad wants him to anyhow. And I think we can relate to that, right? Like, we don't like to really be interrupted. Do y'all, can y'all kind of relate to that when your parents ask you, hey, can you go out and do this? I need to take care of this, go do this chore. It's usually not the case that you're just sitting around doing nothing, hoping your parents hand the chore to you, right? Like you're probably doing something. So when they tell you, and you're like, eh, I don't really want to do that. Or maybe you have a friend, right? Like that's Maybe when you get older, you experience that a little bit more when your parents aren't giving you chores, but maybe your friend calls you up and is like, hey, I need some help to do this. Can you come help me out? And your immediate reaction is like, eh, I'd rather watch the football game than just go at my house. But after you hang up the phone or after your parents ask you to do something and you don't respond the right way, maybe it kind of eats at your conscience a little bit. And you're like, you know, me telling my parents no, or me turning down my friend's request for help, not really the right thing to do. I'm going to get up and go do it. That's the first son. But then the second son, who again, I bet we can all relate to, right? In verse 30, they came to, he came to the second son and said the same thing, and the second son says, yeah, I'll go do it. But then he didn't go. Now, how many of us are guilty of that? I mean, the reality is we all are, right? Um, we've all been this person, and it can be for a number of reasons, right? Like, maybe you just didn't want to look bad. Like, obviously, when your parents tell you, hey, I need you to do this, perhaps the thought is, well, maybe I'll say yes and then try to figure out later how to get out of it, right? Like, we know what the parents want us to say. Or when our friend approaches us for a favor, maybe we don't want to have the conflict, or the embarrassment of rejecting our friends, so we're like, yeah, sure, we can help you. But then the whole time before, like, they ask for help on Saturday, right? And it's Wednesday. And so, like, Thursday and Friday, you're like, oh, man, I hope something comes up to give me an excuse out of helping my friend on Saturday, you know? Like, uh, so this, um, this second son is like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Now, Jesus is going to ask a very obvious question and it's supposed to be obvious here right 
I want to hear from you first before we go to the answers of the religious leaders. Which of these two sons is better? The first. Now, is it ideal that he initially says, no, Dad, I'm not doing what you say to do, and then goes and does it? No, that's not ideal. Like, I don't know how many of you have heard my, my wife says this to the kids all the time. Um, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Have y'all heard this one before? I think it came from a book at Countryside because I've heard way too many parents saying it. Go ahead. Well, that's a good theological answer. True. Not exactly where we're going, but I won't argue with that. But um, the, uh, the um, what was I going to say? Yeah, obviously... You'd want the first son to say, yeah, sure, I'll go take care of it and go take care of it. But the one who got the job done is obviously the better son. The, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, they're all going to agree with you. Um, when Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. They said the first. Because just saying you're going to do something and then not doing it, doesn't really amount to anything, right? What matters is actually doing what the Father asks you to do. But this is all really just setting them up for a shocking lesson. Because Jesus is going to use this parable, this illustration. They've already said the first one is the better one, right? And now Jesus is going to turn this on them and use this as a lesson. And what he's going to do is say, okay, well, you religious elite, you self-righteous people, you individuals who think, hey, I'm good enough to earn my way back into good standing with God, you are the second son and the ones that you consider just to be the most horrible people of your society, they are actually the first. A truly shocking lesson, not just for the religious leaders who would have been shocked for sure, but all those who heard Jesus speaking. The first son is ultimately obedient the second son was ultimately disobedient. So let's look at this. A truly shocking lesson. Verses 31 to 32. Jesus says again, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward, so as to believe in him or believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes. If you wanted to, if Jesus wanted to get their attention and really shock them, there's no better way than to equate 
their disobedience, their hearts with tax collectors or not to equate, but to show that they were worse than repentant tax collectors and prostitutes. And when he says, truly I say to you, in verse 31, Jesus is saying, listen, everything Jesus said was true. But when he says, truly I say to you, he's saying, listen, I am about to give you a very critical core piece of truth that I want you to hold on to. Listen very closely. The tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. I mean, that, that had to be like, come on. You've got to be kidding. For When, when Jesus said that, that to them, that was just absolutely outrageous. They're probably thinking, okay, maybe I'm not perfect. But I'm not that bad, right? Because who were the tax collectors? They were the one. Oh, they were the ones that most of their most of Jewish society looked at as traitors. They were the ones that remember during this time, the Roman Empire is occupying Jerusalem. So, like, it would be like for us if Russia, like, they kept rolling and. They occupy the United States. And we all live here, but Putin's in charge, right? And, um, yeah, you laugh, but, hey, that's the real circumstance for these folks, right? And, like, what if, what if Jackson here takes a job for Putin, from Putin, to collect taxes from all of us, right? Like, how would you feel about Jackson at that point, huh? All right. You, that, very, okay, well, there you go. You would hate him. That's exactly it. But not only does Jackson collect taxes for them, he's going to, like, let's say Russia says, Aiden, we're going to need to pay you to pay 10% of your money to Russia from now on, okay? Jackson's going to be the one responsible for collecting that, but he's probably going to charge you 20%, give 10% to Russia, and keep the rest of it for himself, right? So there you go. You, you would obviously see why you would hate Jackson at this point. But we love Jackson. Jackson's awesome. But you get the point. That was the tax collectors. They were viewed as traitors because not only were they working for the Roman government, they had betrayed their own nation, their own people. But beyond that, they were extorting their own people and stealing from them. And robbing from them. They're being greedy. It's just bad thing on top of bad thing, right? So you can see why he hated the tax collectors. And obviously, prostitution is a horribly sinful thing. And a horribly immoral thing. And if you try to think of immorality, it's probably hard to get at a higher level. And so you've got these, what you would rightly think as really horrible parts of society and then you've got the so-called moral elite those who look really good on the outside those who say the right things they act the right way in our terminology they show up at church every single sunday and wednesday 
And Jesus is saying that this group gets into heaven before this group. How can that possibly be? How does that make any sense? Well, here's where it makes sense. It makes sense because the path to a right standing with God there's only one possible path, and that is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because what is God's standard? Does God have a human standard like us? Like, okay, we would look at those two groups and say, yeah, like, who's better, right? Like, from an earthly standpoint, a human standpoint, we would probably say the religious leaders. But God's standard is perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And all of us, including the religious elite here in this passage, are sinful and fall short of that standard. And the problem becomes when we are so caught up in our own self-righteousness that we can't see our sinfulness to repent and come to faith in Christ. That was the message of John the Baptist. Jesus brings up John here again. The message of John the Baptist was that um, repentance was the path to forgiveness of sins. And self-righteous, those who were self-righteous, those who um, refused to recognize their sinfulness and turn from that sinfulness, in faith towards God could not be saved. Let's look back at John the Baptist. So look at Luke chapter 3, verses 3 to 9. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 and 9. It brings us to Luke's record of the ministry of John the Baptist. Because Jesus says here in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So what was this message of John that the tax collectors and prostitutes accepted, but that the self-righteous rejected. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 to 9. And John came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown 
into the fire. There's two key things I want you to take away from that. The first part is repentance. What happens with a self-righteous person who thinks they're okay? How likely is that person to come to repentance? It's not going to happen, right? If you think that you are a good person, you go to church all the time, you do everything you're told to do, you follow all the, the guidelines of the church, if you're like these chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, you're not looking to repent. What do you got to repent of? You're doing a good job, right? How about the other side of the spectrum, though? You are a tax collector. You are a very immoral person. And then somebody comes to you and explains to you the gospel and talks about sin and what sin does to your relationship with God. And you reflect on your sinfulness and you come to a place where you recognize your sinfulness and you recognize the holiness of God. How much more of an opportunity is there for repentance at that point? A lot, right? A lot of opportunity for opportunity for repentance. What the gospel would call us to all realize is that we are not righteous. If you think you're okay with God just because you're a good kid or a good person, the gospel is screaming out for you to recognize, no, you are just as sinful and broken as everybody else, and you need to repent and put your faith in Christ. Otherwise, you've got no place in his kingdom. So that's the first aspect of self-righteousness that I want to draw you to from what John preached was he preached a message of repentance and the self-righteous were not willing to accept it. The second key thing I want you to recognize is they also relied on the fact that they were Jewish, that they were born into the lineage of Abraham. People clung to that. They said, hey, we are descendants of Abraham. God's got to let us into heaven. They clung to external worldly things. Um, and John calls them out on that. He says in verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. We can fall into that trap too, right? We can fall into that same trap of saying, Hey, I grew up at North Lake Bible Church. We're a Bible church. We believe the Bible. I've been in North Lake Bible Church children's ministry, youth group. I've memorized everything they've asked me to memorize. My parents are good Christian people. They, I even go help them set up and tear down. We can cling to all these external things. And in that case, we are when we're clinging to anything other than Jesus Christ to get into heaven, when we're clinging to anything other than his mercy and the grace we have from him, we're going to fall into the exact same category that John is condemning the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees for. Clinging to external human things that will always fall short of meeting the righteous requirement of God. So when we look at John's ministry, he taught repentance and faith in God for salvation. And Jesus is saying, hey, look at the ministry of John the Baptist. The lowly of society got it. Those who recognized their sinfulness got it and came to a place of repentance and were baptized by John while the self-righteous 
he's vested in. Think about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 4. We won't read through all of them. But if you ever want to know, like, what are the heart conditions that should make up a person who is in God's kingdom? Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. It's a great place to look, the Beatitudes. But I'll just point you to the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is Jesus talking about there when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you want the kingdom of God? Yes. I hope you say yes to that. Okay. Then I better be poor in spirit. What does that mean? It's recognizing that I am in the same category, in in the same spiritual state as the spiritually worse off people out there like we're all what does James say if you keep the whole law yet fall in one part you become guilty of all of it right like I am a sinner I am poor spirit and in and of myself I have nothing of value to offer God but the gospel the good news is that's okay that is actually when you inherit the kingdom of God when you recognize that you are poor in spirit because it's at that point that you come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ, relying on him and his grace and the mercy offered to him is more than sufficient. But take it back to the lesson tonight from Jesus. The self-righteous and the extremely immoral. Which one is more likely to recognize that they are truly poor in spirit? The self-righteous doesn't have a good chance, right? But those who are in, recognize their spiritual poverty, theirs is the kingdom of God. Luke also gives us a very good illustration of this. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The Pharisee and the publican. Publicans like tax collectors, so think of the same thing. Jesus told this parable to some people. Here's the key. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke, Jesus told this parable, parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. You see, this is like right in line with what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 21. Jesus said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That guy's in a bad position. Can you, can you already see that he's in a really bad position? Like, if we all are in need of repentance and recognition of our spiritual poverty and trust in the grace of Christ, you read the words of the Pharisee there and you think, oh man, this guy's in big trouble. He's got no chance, right? 
but the tax collector, standing some distance away and even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the message that Jesus would have for us as we turn back to Matthew chapter 21? Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is telling the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders that are around them that their self-righteousness is going to cause them to miss their one and only possible route of entry into the kingdom of God. It's for us to look at this lesson and really find ourselves in it. Which end of the spectrum do we find ourselves on? It's easy to fall into those patterns of self-righteousness, right? It's easy to fall into those patterns of, okay, I'm going to just, I I grow up in the church, I do everything my parents tell me to do, and I'm a really good kid. Everybody always tells me I'm a really good kid, you know? Everybody always says, I have a good head on my shoulders, and I do the right things. You've got to watch out for that self-righteousness, that attitude, because the reality for each and every one of us is that we are deeply broken people. By nature, children of wrath. By nature, we are enemies of God. By nature, we are sinful and rebellious individuals, each and every one of us, in our only hope for entry into the kingdom of God is his mercy that we have through Jesus Christ. But that's the beautiful thing about the gospel, right? The gospel, the the mercy that God offers us through Jesus Christ is so powerful that even the worst of sinners, even those who have fallen the deepest into immorality can be perfectly forgiven in Jesus Christ. Look through the Bible, right? Think about so often who God chose to use throughout Scripture, and very often He chose people who had done terrible things. Think about who Paul was. Think about the Apostle Paul. What did he do before he became a Christian? Persecuted Christians. Like, can you get worse? And in fact, when Jesus confronts Paul and Paul's converted to become an apostle of Christ, Christ says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was as bad. I mean, you can't get any worse than persecuting the church. Yet, it's the same Paul that God used to write 13 letters of the New Testament. The Word of God came to us, large pieces of it, through Paul, a former persecutor of the church. Do you think it's just by coincidence that God made that happen? No. It's an illustration to all of us that no matter how far off track your life has gone, and no matter how sinful you are, His grace is more than sufficient. 
So my challenge for all of us would be, how serious do we take our sin, right? I think that's step number one. Do we take sin serious? And that's the first thing I really want us to look at and think about. Do we take sin serious? Do we recognize our own spiritual poverty? Or are we on that self-righteous train? Because if we're on the self-righteous side of things, we've got to look to God's standard. And God's standard is what is going on at the heart level, right? Like Jesus said, hey, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you have adultery or lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. The standard of God is at the heart level. And because of that, we all are going to fall short, right? And so how serious do we take that? How serious do we take our sinfulness in recognizing that we need a Savior? Because the next step from there is repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ, recognizing that His grace is sufficient. We don't get into despair because of our sinfulness. We don't, we don't come to a place where we lose hope because our hope is in Jesus Christ whose grace is sufficient. That's my challenge for all of us, to hear the gospel, to repent, and believe. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for just your love for us, the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, the path to salvation that you offer. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to rightly evaluate our hearts, to see our sinfulness for what it is, but in seeing your sinfulness for what it is, to also see the mercy and the grace that we have through Jesus Christ, the mercy and the grace that you offer us through repentance and faith in him. And I just pray that you would bring us to that place in our hearts where we turn our lives over to you, trusting in you, loving you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.